Accountants with guns. These are the special agents of the Criminal Investigation Division of the Internal Revenue Service. There's 2,000 of them, and they have not only plenty of firepower, but they're also armed with the sole mandate across the U.S. government to investigate violations of federal tax laws and related crimes. For more than a century, CI special agents have worked quietly across 21 field offices and 11 foreign countries on investigations of massive scale and complexity, seizing billions of dollars in assets. Hello everyone, this is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Criminal investigation has played an outsized role in some of the biggest, most fascinating criminal tax cases of our time, from taking down legendary bootlegger Al Capone and investigating the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, to bringing the hammer down on Russian President Vladimir Putin and his oligarchs for sanctions violations via the recently launched Justice Department Task Force Klepto Capture. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, James Robnett, Deputy Chief of IRS Criminal Investigation, to tell us more about the amazing work that he and his team are doing. Jim, welcome to Techtopia. Hey, thanks for having me, Chitra. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you began your career in the IRS. Well, um, I'm an accountant by trade, uh, schooled uh, in that uh, in that specialty, was worked in public accounting for a short period of time, then started with the IRS as a field auditor, went out and audited businesses uh, and small companies. And I did a little bit of work. Uh, I found myself involved in uh, identifying some fraud cases. And as I did that, I worked really close with a unit that I knew very little about that was part of IRS. It's uh, the criminal investigation division called at that time. And as I worked with those uh, agents on the fraud that I identified, uh, I became interested in becoming a special agent. And so from that point, uh, around 1994, I uh, was selected as a special agent, went to training. And, and part of that training is the law enforcement side. Is It's an unusual combination, right, uh, with accountants, with, with uh, lots of firepower, as you described us. We, uh, we go to federal law enforcement training for six months like every other uh, federal law enforcement agency that, that most people might recognize, like the Bureau or um, HSI, ATF, and so on. So we're all schooled in those fine arts of law enforcement. And then we, we go to each go to our specialty, the things that we're charged with protecting. In our case, it's financial crime uh, from every corner, every type, uh, with an emphasis on uh, investigating allegations of criminal tax fraud. So how did, was it always the case that they were hiring people with accounting backgrounds and then also giving them guns or did that evolve over time? <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's interesting and you, you mentioned about our hundred year history, uh, the first agents that were uh, brought in to build this division were actually postal inspectors, uh, about five to six of them, because at that time, there was a lot of uh, corruption, a lot of tax evasion by large companies, and that, in this case, not as many companies as there were gangsters. And the the government realized they needed an accounting mind with some sort of law enforcement experience. And that's how we started. And ever since the that day when there were probably less than 10 of us, um, those two components, the accounting and finance component plus the law enforcement training, really uh, resonated uh, so that the, the crimes that, that are committed under various statutes, uh, uh, usually by um, criminals who, who are driven by greed um, and power, almost always result in money. Um, that is the sole purpose for most criminal activity. And so we follow money. And so that degree in accounting and that or that degree in finance and that experience goes a long way to us asking the questions, um, the agents asking the right questions to follow the money. And that's what we do best, better than anyone. And you've now spent, what, nearly four decades at the IRS and nearly, what, 30 years of those in criminal investigation. What what drew you to the work and has kept you there all these years? Well, Chitra, I think I aged about 10 years <laughs> when you said that. So thanks for that. But um, I'll tell you, I, I think... I know the reason I've stayed here because I am dedicated to the mission. The agents and our investigative teams here at IRSCI, we're, we're dedicated to protecting those dollars in the treasury. 
because we, like everyone else, we pay our taxes. We want to make sure they go toward the right things. And for me to be part of an organization where one, for, for 10 years, I did investigations. And now I can actually help direct resources to agents and our investigative teams uh, in a way that, that I've learned to best point toward the criminal activity. That's what's kept me here. Um, it's a great group of people, very dedicated public servants. It's not a job. <laughs> it is a lifestyle. Um, it's a lifestyle that I like. It's a lifestyle that um, all everyone here, everyone here in this agency has made sacrifices for, but we do it because we're public servants at heart. We're dedicated and, and I like serving the people here and that's why I'm still here. And, you know, having covered law enforcement for many, many years, you know, I, I know that it's law enforcement agents, really, there's the credit sometimes often keeps you going because there's very little in other incentives like pay and all of that <laughs> stuff. But, right. but I think your division often does a lot of really fascinating work, but kind of sometimes uh, doesn't get the kind of credit or is not seeking the kind of credit it, it, it deserves on these cases. Well, and you're right, you know, and we really... Uh, don't do it for the credit. Of course, everyone likes to be recognized. I like the agents to be recognized for the hard work that they do. This is not a nine to five job. Criminals, they work all hours of the day and night. Like, unlike you and I, Chitra, they, uh, that's their job. And, <laughs> and so, you know, we don't, we don't wake up at eight o'clock saying, hey, we're just going to, you know, chugging eight hours today or nine hours today. One day, maybe 10 hours. The other day, maybe 12. Another one, maybe eight. Um, it just it just depends. And and so that work is done is done very methodically. And the satisfaction we have in this job with what we're charged to do in financial investigations, criminal financial investigations, that what we don't have to rely on as much as maybe some other work is that we have witnesses that tell us somebody said something bad or they have a you know, they they may tell us that there's a certain amount of money in the bank. But when we go sees that evidence and we obtain it from a bank. We have all kinds of legal processes we go through and it takes time. We seize it, we build this case and we have to, you know, we, we investigate these allegations, right? And if, if the allegations are false, we move on to something else and we do our best to, to, to look at and identify the most egregious criminal activity. And I think we're pretty good at doing that. Uh, but once we build a case and we're taught to do this, both through experience and in our training, it's, it's airtight. Um, the, the allegations we look at, these are not mistakes that someone makes. Um, we're not tax collectors in this division. We're not um, auditors in this division. We look for a pattern of, of bad behavior that's obviously filled with bad money or evasion uh, toward their, their tax liability. And we look for the nominee accounts, the hidden accounts, the attempts to thwart um, the tax law, abuse it and so on. And so going back to your question, uh, do we work in relative, relative silence? We do. We build strong cases, um, cases that are, I would say, airtight. Um, we have a 92% conviction rate. That's the highest in federal law enforcement. Now, do we turn as many cases as other law enforcement agencies? No, because one, we don't have as many agents. And, and two, it takes a little longer to work our cases. But that satisfaction of working these kind of cases on, on people who are stealing the taxpayers' dollars or are victimizing citizens because of, say, a Ponzi scheme or, or some schemes that we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, there is a lot of satisfaction in a job well done. And that's, uh, you know, that's how we work in silence, often with, with really no uh, worry about recognition. Uh, but I will tell you, if we don't publicize and we don't let people know, the public know what we're doing, um, you know, we're, we're falling down and we do have a really good communication division that, that takes care of that force and lets the public know that we're working for them and we're doing our best. Yeah. And, you know, criminal investigation has such a sort of a dramatic and sweeping narrative arc. And let's start with like the bootlegging days of Al Capone and like all the way to today with cryptocurrency and sanctions. So, Let's tell some stories, starting with Al Capone. Obviously, that was like one of the most famous tax cases of all, right? It's only when uh, the federal government realized that they could go, go after him uh, using tax evasion that and tax crimes that they were able to nab him. Right, uh, Chitran. And I, I hope that the people listening to your podcast remember that name 
and I don't feel older when they say, who is that? But, <laughs> but that, is, <laughs> that is the case that put us on the map. And if anyone out there has seen the movies that, that go to the untouchables and Kevin Costner plays Elliot Ness, I mean, there's, there's threads of truth in that movie. Uh, he plays an ATF agent. The fact is that that part, it, and he, uh, Elliot Ness did his job at the time, but he was not the one that brought down Al Capone. It was these guys that were from the Postal Inspection Service brought in uh, to what then was to be known the uh, intelligence unit of IRSCI at that time. And there was six guys. One, and the chief's name was uh, Elmer Irie, and he was a postal inspector that had actually um, done a lot of internal uh, investigative work within the Postal Service. And at that time, you might remember, or you might, you don't remember, I don't remember, I, a lot, a lot of uh, work in commerce was done through the mail. That's all it was. So the Postal Service was, was the, uh, they were the investigators at the time. So five or six of them came over in the IRS because at that time, the president said, you know, we have to fund a war. It's called World War I. And mm -hmm. we know the tax, the tax uh, law that was enacted in 1913, the income tax law, it's being abused. It's not being paid by, by the businesses and, and these uh, corrupt um, gangsters. And the only people paying it are the ones, the, the, the people who really can't pay. And so they, the president uh, charged the then commissioner of IRS to bring an investigative unit together. All that turned into these, uh, this, these group of untouchables. And the real untouchables is Elma Irie, Mike Malone, and um, a few others that you might remember from that movie where they actually looked at Capone from how much money are you making and are you paying taxes on it? And, and what they found is that Mike Malone was the first undercover agent, actually went undercover into Capone's organization, became one of his right-hand men, lived with Capone for three years, lived in that organization for three years. He's the first undercover agent um, that you know, should be spotlighted. This guy should have a statue for him. And so long story short is that they accounted for all of Capone's income over a several year period of time and realized he didn't pay any taxes on it. And that took a lot of time, a lot of time. And as a result, at trial, Capone was convicted of tax evasion and sentenced and placed in jail. Now, I'll tell you that Mike Malone, an interesting backstory, he knew of a, of a scheme to... Um, scare uh, some of the jury. And uh, Al Capone, one of his bodyguards, had a firearm that he was taking in court. And it was only then that Mike Malone exposed himself as a, you know, a government employee, right? Uh, and where he took down that, that a bodyguard to take the firearm from as that trial was ongoing. So really interesting story around that. So Capone was convicted and sent to jail on tax charges, not bootlegging, not, uh, not anything else. He had been responsible for a lot of murders, uh, a lot of violent activity. For a while, he had you know, sort of this public sentiment that he was he was good. But once the corruption started, once the killing started, he lost that public sentiment, and the public asked, you know, that this guy needs to be put in jail. And uh, that the then intelligence unit led by Elmer Irie were the ones that uh, that put him away. Yeah, despite all the liberties they took, The Untouchables is absolutely probably one of my most favorite movies, if not the most favorite movie. I watch it every single time I, I, <laughs> I, I see it. <laughs> it's advertised. It, it's a great, it is a great movie. And the, there's some characters in there that are real. I remember Frank Wilson. You might remember, uh, I can't remember who played his part, um, but he was a guy who had like these round glasses and they, they portrayed him as this, you know, this accountant. And yeah. All he could do was like, was lose the books. Well, he was real. And, and what's really interesting about Frank Wilson, he was on this this uh, team with Elma Irie and Mike Malone. And uh, Elma, uh, Frank Wilson later went to lead the then formed United States Secret Service. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow, that's a great story. Well, that's one of the reasons that uh, the Secret Service has that they're, they're charged with um, count, you know, identifying counterfeiting and, and that's their, it's one of their primary missions other than protection, obviously. But, but yeah, he went to go lead that agency. Uh, after he left the intelligence unit. And then shortly after was the other f really famous case of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. How did CI get involved and, and what was really notable about that investigation? Um, uh, yeah, interesting story. Again, I, how much your audience knows about um, uh, Charles Lindbergh. He, Charles Lindbergh Sr., I, I think he, well, I know he was an aviator, one of the first to make, the first to make the transatlantic flight. And so he was famous around a lot of, uh, well, around that, 
that uh, you know that that record, and then a lot of others. But his uh, child, Charles Lindbergh Jr., was kidnapped and held for ransom. And this was shortly after. It was in 1932. It was shortly after Capone's you know trial and went to jail. And so the baby was kidnapped, and there was a ransom note left that you know you pay fifty thousand dollars, you'll find your child in a boat near the shore. They lived near the shore. And um, you know, leave your fifty thousand dollars in this location. And so, Lindbergh had known about had had listened to the um, uh, the Capone the, uh, the Capone trial, and said, "Hey, these guys at the intelligence unit, along with other law enforcement that that they were talking to, these guys know what they're doing. If anyone can find this child, um, solve this crime, they they're a good choice." So. So he went to uh, the, um, the president and at that time and also went to uh, 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 Elmer Irie and said, hey, uh, I need your help. So he engaged the intelligence unit to, to try to track down the criminal. Now, he, what's interesting is that um, and originally uh, the government didn't want, did not want um, Lindbergh to pay the ransom, but he insisted, you know, he, he looked, his child got, was kidnapped out, out of a bedroom window. So he paid a $50,000 uh, $50,000 in ransom. Now, before he did that, though, and this is the, the, the brainchild of Elmer Irie and his unit, they said, you know, we'll, you, we'll let you pay that. We'll, we'll pay it under one condition. We're going to record every serial number on every bill, bill that you're going to give. And, and it was a bit of a fight, a bit of a struggle, I understand. But they did. It took um, like 14 clerks, 14 to 15 clerks, just eight hours a day recording all those numbers. They said, we're also going to place this money, you know, in a certain container so that perhaps one day when we find it or find something around it, you know, it'll lead us to the, you know, to the person that's responsible for the crime. And uh, during this time, it was this, this kidnapping, crime in a century, a lot of publicity around it. During this time, Capone was in prison. And Capone from prison said, hey, if I'm released, I can track down the kidnapper. Can you believe that? <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. What an intersection. Yeah. Right, right. And I, I, there could be really some uh, real time. You know, this is a truth is better than fiction example, right? That, that uh, totally. from prison says he can do that. So uh, during this time, uh, Elmer Irie actually accompanies Lindbergh in what is probably a small plane at the time, uh, flying over some of these uh, marina areas where allegedly a Lindbergh's child was was kept, was being hidden. And so Elmer Irie's in, in plane are flying around. And so, because that's what the ransom note said. It said, hey, you'll find your child in a boat in this location. And so um, they paid the ransom. They couldn't find the child. Uh, but the intelligence unit there, along with local law enforcement, handed out pamphlets in the area there that had the serial numbers of these bills. And they said, hey, um, they handed them out to the banks. And they, they did that for a couple of years. And Frank Wilson made visits to the banks and said, hey, have you seen any of these C notes? And, uh, and, and, you know, of course, the answers were no at the time. But uh, about 30 or, you know, 20, 30 months after the baby was kidnapped, a gas station attendant. Uh, and these notes were, they were actually $10 bills. They called them gold certificates at the time. Picked up a $10 bill from uh, someone who, who uh, gassed up out there at his uh, New York gas station. And... Uh, to, to protect and counterfeiting, he was looking at the bill and he knows something unusual about the guy that was paying it. And he wrote the serial number, I'm not serial number, the, the license plate number of the car um, on, the, on the $10 gold certificate. Of course, that goes to the bank. The bank teller <laughs> looks at that bill and realizes that that's one of the bills listed um, uh, by those tellers you know, wow. two years earlier. Right, that's uh, sort of the needle in the haystack jumping out at you, I guess. And, and but and so that that note with that license plate led them to a person named Bruno Hutman, and uh, the police, uh, you know, had enough evidence to run a uh, a warrant on Bruno Hutman's house. And when they went in the house, they found a wooden box containing at that time fourteen thousand and change of bills. Um, all of those bills matched the list. Um, what was really interesting about the box is that box was made from several different kinds of wood. And they found pieces of that around that house. Um, after that warrant and prior to trial, the intelligence unit built the case against Bruno Hopman because this is, 
an important case to what they found out later uh, in the midst of this is that Charles Jr. had been killed. He had been murdered shortly after he was kidnapped. They, f- they found him a short period of time, um, you know, uh, uh, deceased, not far from the house. So Bruno Hutman's going in for murder. Um, you have to kind of tie him to the, to the money and the kidnapping. And so the intelligence unit of the $50,000, they accounted for $49,800 and change. You know, that's where <laughs> this following the money, right? I mean, that's in its infancy, how we follow the money. Definitely and, good with money if you're able to yeah, come that yeah, close. That's right. I mean, I, I don't I don't do that well with my money in my bank account. I just hope it stays <laughs> it stays there. But uh, some of the evidence, and this is really the cool part about the trial, and this is where evidence matters. It isn't about people saying they saw something. At trial, they entered a receipt for a boat trip that Hotman took with his wife to California. Now, what's interesting, on the receipt, the word boat was spelled B-O-A-D. On the ransom note, the word boat was spelled B-O-A-D. Connection, you know, right there. Um, At the very end of trial, he was convicted. The uh, trial foreman said that one of the things that contributed most to the conviction of Hopman was the fact that the cash was found in the house, um, the boxes, box was there, parts of the box was there, and that all that evidence tied 60 different ways went right to Hopman. So just, you know, there's a murder solved by money, <laughs> people who follow money. Now, we weren't the only one involved in that. The Bureau was involved in tracking some things down, um, local law enforcement did as well. But that just, you know, the plan itself was set in, in motion by the intelligence unit. So from there, what would you say was the next big case uh, and an area of new expertise? Would it, would it be money laundering? Well, money laundering came later. What I'll tell you is that after Capone was put in jail and in the midst of the Lindbergh investigation, there were, you know, there were Capones in every city, every city. And it was well known by that time that if you uh, well, in Chicago, for example, where Capone was from, um, there were you know stories of uh, gangsters literally going to the IRS office and paying their tax. There was lines of them. Now that doesn't mean they were all Capone-like. That's just the story. Every city had their Capone, and so from from the Capone time on through for the next decade, um, IRS um, and the intelligence unit at that time continued to track the money and put those those gangsters in jail, or at least push them to another uh, uh, type of crime or maybe another law enforcement agency would could get traction on it. Then I would say in the 40s, that was sort of the 20s and 30s. And in the 40s, you, we saw the emergence of mafia, right? Same kind of thing. Um, and, and so there's the um, number of mafia family heads were were tagged by Irish criminal investigation at time. I'm not sure if it, it wasn't the unit, but it was a um, yeah, it could have been intelligence unit. I think we're intelligence up through the 50s. And then uh, shortly after that, we're moving into the uh, 70s and 80s where we do get into the money laundering. Um, we also get into uh, John Gotti, Studio 54, and then the drug lords that, that come and begin to move their money you know, from, from their probably unstable uh, parts of, of the world where they're uh, manufacturing narcotics through the US financial system. And that's when uh, the late 70s or early 80s, where IRSCI uh, saw this money moving. Again, they're just, we're just following money, following value. And we see that money tied to criminal activity. And it was around that time, maybe the early 80s, that some of the first money laundering criminal statutes were, were put into play and enacted by Congress. And in terms of technology, I mean, we talked about how with the Lindbergh baby, you know, it's the painstaking noting down of serial numbers, and then you're kind of the the, the CI is becoming more sophisticated as these cr- criminals are becoming more uh, sophisticated, and you're handling different types of crimes. Was there any shift in terms of technology to combat these drug cartels or the mafia, et cetera? You know, I'd like to say that that we're so technologically advanced that we're ahead <laughs> of everyone, but but uh, we're not. I think I know that our expertise grows with the fact that we really haven't changed the mold in which our agents work. 
we, again, we are accountants or people with finance degrees. We ask the kind of questions that most people don't about um, someone's books and records. When we see a bank account, we just don't look at the bank balance. We say, wow, where did that, where did that deposit come from? Or, or where did that expenditure go to? And, and why is it, why is that expenditure coming out of this account? And so we just, you know, we evolve with the crime technology wise. Um, you know, we, we began using computers and databases about the same time everyone else did. Um, I, I'll tell you my age that I was within, <laughs> I was in the ranks of some of the first agents that when we had it, you know, laptop computers used in field and uh, they weren't very powerful. You know, that was probably in the early nineties. But in terms of what we do have access to, we, we work real well with our other counterparts or other federal enforcement. So we combine our skill sets when we need to. If there's an allegation around drug sales, or narcotics, trafficking, you know, I'm not talking in, at the street level, um, although that's, that is where it spills out. But we're looking sort of in that middle to upper management of those organizations because that's what they are. They're criminal organizations, businesses. And once we see an allegation of, of criminal activity that goes to selling something illegal, it's just drugs, um, um, it could be uh, other Ill illegal activity that, that, that we and most of your audience has heard about, it, any kind of proceeds that's earned from that and then moved and then attempted to be hidden, you know, falls into our money loan statute and we work real closely with, and go back to your question, what changed? I think what changed is, is we worked really began working real closely with, with our partner, federal law enforcement and local law enforcement agencies, because each of us bring a certain skill set to the table. And criminal activity are, is very diverse. You rarely find someone who just does one thing. Uh, it's always about how can I make money, you know, 13 different ways. And so our our strength is in our uh, multi-agency cooperation. And in that, we'll have access to more more data. Um, and just more information resources. So are there any cases in that era that really come to mind that you would like to highlight? Well, I, I'll start with, a, uh, you know, just sort of fast forward and to get your audience into, you know, uh, close to the century. Uh, in the 90s and the 2000s, what the yards may not know is that we actually were some of the first law enforcement on the ground um, during Operation uh, Desert Storm. We actually tracked the money from uh, Saddam Hussein's regime. You know, at the time, uh, he had stored a lot of money in, in different uh, parts of the country. So we had a couple agents on the ground there that worked with uh, special forces. And as they went out, we went out with them. And, and granted, these agents that, are, that work for us, they also have military backgrounds in some cases. We have a lot of, lot of uh, other business skill sets of agents that come to us. And so they're on the ground asking the questions out in the public with you know uh, the forces of, of where the money is, and so I would say, yeah, in the, two, in the 90s, we uh, we helped track down millions and millions of dollars that was hidden by Saddam Hussein. We also worked with and uh, getting us into the 2000s, worked uh, hand in hand in FBI's uh, Joint Terrorism Task Forces, because again, that's a that's where you need a multi-agency approach, and we worked really hard uh, and long hours to help identify uh, where you know, the, the money that went to fund activity by Osama bin Laden. And so we worked on a team to help identify uh, him. And that on and then just to throw one other out at you, you may not be aware of, the Boston Marathon Bombers. Um, you know, we, we have a large field office up there, work real closely with the FBI, local law enforcement, to help investigate who those people were, how they got funded, who may have been involved in that as well. So, um, a lot of interesting work throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s as we began to get involved in um, more illegal uh, uh, at detecting, identifying, tracing illegal proceeds to the source to determine you know, what the crime was. You don't always know in the beginning, but you surely know as you traverse through the paper and the witnesses and the bank accounts and, uh, and so on. 
Yeah. And, you know, speaking of paper, right, we read a lot of those amazing stories of bin Laden and his uh, people, members of Al Qaeda who were, you know, when you found all of this pocket litter and found his notebooks and his diaries and you found how, you know, they were painstakingly keeping records of the most minute expenses and bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like there was this whole organizational part of it that most people didn't realize that it takes to to fund and operate a terrorist group. Well, yeah, and you know, uh, Chitra, one thing I want to bring out, I don't know if I brought that before now. So our division is the only law enforcement division that can investigate criminal tax crime. Um, you know, we're the only ones that have the authority to, to uh, investigate and, and refer uh, our cases to the Justice Department, who then looks at them, says, yes, you know, this is worthy of an indictment and so on and so forth. No one else does that. So that is our mission. Our, our mission primarily is tax crime. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, 70% of what we do is angled toward detecting that tax fraud. Um, that's what we're charged with. And then the, we have another part of our, our expertise and program area that goes into money laundering, violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. And, and those last two really encompass so much criminal activity, right? I mean, if you're trying to hide something in someone else's name or you're, you're, you're making money some off, so if you're laundering your money, it's gonna to go to criminal activity. Um, and so just, just to make it real clear, that's our, that's our responsibility. First of all, to identifying uh, and uh, investigating allegations of criminal tax fraud. Again, no mistakes, it's not a one-year mistake. These are uh, people who have uh, evaded their, their tax liability over a period of time uh, with a lot of bad behavior and usually hidden their money around the world. In today's um, tax cases and money on the cases, they are no longer just domestic. They're not just held within you know, uh, the continental United States. Our casework is global. And you mentioned earlier that we have uh, uh, attaches around the world. That's a fancy title for a very skilled special agent who who is stationed in a, in, a, in a country in an embassy working with other law enforcement that helps um, um, agents here in the States uh, identify and secure evidence of crime, of, of this criminal activity that might be in another country. And our cases are always, almost always global in nature these days because the internet's made uh, the world a lot smaller. We both know that. Yes, and almost virtually every crime has some touch point on the internet you got it. And, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because where before we would tend to look at uh, you know, paper transactions, paper receipts, paper invoices, maybe a, a company had a double set of books. It was always something you held in your hand. And as the internet blossomed and services came out of the internet, our work, um, you know, naturally business traverses internet, value traverses internet, whether it's a Bitcoin, whether it's um, a wire, uh, being sent somewhere. So when you asked earlier, how did it change? It We changed and evolved in terms of following money, following value, uh, like anyone else did doing business, right? We just uh, learned where how that money moves to pay for services. And in some cases, it's a service that's illegal. And you, you played a role in looking at some of the uh, COVID-19 recovery relief related fraud as well. What was that process like and, and, and how, much, uh, how much did you seize in terms of assets and funds? Well, yeah, we did. I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, when all the COVID relief money came out, it's not unlike a lot of relief programs that are geared towards getting money to taxpayers, people that victims, people that in this case, you know, right, victims of COVID, whether you're an employee or an employer that that can no longer be in business, so that money's directed to those folks, and 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 there's always there's always a criminal that's going to uh, do their best to to steal that money from the government, and we had plenty of that. So there's a, the uh, the loans that were given out uh, during COVID. And there were a number of programs. There were so uh, you know criminals file false paperwork saying, hey, I'm an employer. I had you know 50 employees. I had to lay them off. Um, I need this amount of money. And of course, who has the information that knows, you know, of course, IRS has the information that can tell you, hey, is this a real business that had employees over the last, you know, 10 years? And we just, it, it isn't that simple, but just to give you a simple example, we, that, that application, often after the, the funds are paid, because 
that that was not our responsibility to pay the funds. It was just to get it out to everyone that needed it. But on occasion, we would compare those out. Well, we compare those applications with, with what we know be filing. And so if you have a, a brand new business that says it had 50 employees, um, well, if they never operated and they got loans, uh, we're off to the races and looking at that kind of a allegation, right? It, it, we don't know what's happening there yet, but we get out there pretty quick. And as a result, we had, um, I would say over a hundred indictments, millions of dollars that we were able to secure and seize back and bring back in the government. Uh, but that's, that'll happen again. You know, whatever the next program's gonna, whatever the taxpayer's gonna need for relief, uh, you know, decades from now or years from now, who knows what that is, but uh, an effort for the government to deliver those funds to help victims, in this case of COVID, um, the criminal will always take advantage of it. That's what they do. That's, that's their business. That's what they do all day long, and they're, and they're pretty darn good at it. Yeah, public corruption is another area of focus. How has it evolved over the last few years? Well, what I would tell you is that in, in addition to the, the investigation of the gangster activity and the mafia activity, during the course of all that, of course, there's, there's what most people know is bribery and corruption that happens, and we follow the money. If the money takes us to a, public, a, a person who, who is who has the public's trust, in other words, elected official, um, is, is just another criminal to us. Um, we don't attach a name or a title to the case. We just follow the evidence and what we think are the most significant matters. And in, in many cases, we have had a lot of public corruption cases. Um, uh, I've been involved in a couple uh, while I was uh, the uh, agent in charge of the, of the Chicago field office, uh, Dennis Hastert there, he was a former speaker of the house was uh, put in jail for um, some bank violations that were related to some other activity behind the scenes. And, and we worked that case with the Bureau. Um, so uh, someone who very notable over the years had a, a significant uh, role in national politics for a while, um, went to jail. Um, and there's been others like that as well. Again, we don't, we don't attach a name or a title to the case. When the evidence t- points to bad things happening, or, or someone you know, paying for some sort of illegal activity or violating the Bank Secrecy Acts by you know, depositing small amounts of money over a period of time to avoid a filing requirement. Uh, we work with FinCEN and other agencies you know, to, to sort of root out what, what's meant by all those transactions. And I would imagine, I don't know what you can say, if anything about this, but we've read, obviously, there's been tons and tons of reporting about President Donald, former President Donald Trump and all of the tax investigations swirling around him. And so if there were the criminal angle to that, uh, that would obviously be handled by your uh, division. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, there, there's nothing I could or would say about anything like that. But um, those, any allegation that's brought on someone regardless of their name, regardless of the title, you know, we take it in, we vet it, we look quietly at it, right? Because sometimes these are just, you know, and people who are just, um, well, the allegation doesn't really prove out. And so we're real careful, we have to be, that when we look at an allegation around tax evasion or some other criminal activity, that we, we take it at face value, but we can't, we, we look at it behind the scenes quietly to see, is there any authenticity to this? Um, we have information sources at our fingertips to know what the reporting should be on their taxes, uh, you know, get close to that. Um, um, and so that in mind, yeah, we, we handle almost any kind of allegation that, that, that comes to us, but we also work smart. We, uh, we have data at our hand, at our fingertips now. Some of the things that have changed since the 90s and the early 2000s, we now have um, products that help us really uh, massage our, our data inside IRS to make sure we can detect anomalies and filings um, and, and be more efficient for the taxpayer to detect what we think might be you know, possible civil um, audit activity, you know, where maybe there's a there's an error, and then maybe worse than that, there's a pattern of bad behavior that that some algorithm that that one of our real smart mathematicians has come up with that might spell out, hey, this algorithm applied to this data tells us that uh, these tax returns are being filed compared to other things, really look suspicious. So there's a lot of ways that that we can do our best, right, to to select the most um, uh, egregious and, and the tax returns that had this highest probability of, of fraud. 
you know, we talked about the Lindbergh baby uh, invest kidnapping investigation and how the serial numbers were painstakingly jotted down hour after hour. And today, obviously, one of the biggest shifts for criminal investigation is the skyrocketing increase in cryptocurrency related crimes and crimes are on digital assets. And it's a completely new framework for for money, but also for all of the crimes that go with it. As you pointed out, where there's money, people are going to be committing all kinds of crime. Uh, this has been a huge sea change in your uh, division as well in trying to figure out how to, to go about doing this. On the one hand, you have the transparency of the blockchain, the auditability, but on the other hand, it's a whole new uh, type of technology having to explain it in court to juries, to judges, uh, to prosecutors even, how are you making that transition? No, that's a great question, Chitra, and I, I probably could have gotten into that earlier. Uh, we, we've made the transition. I'll tell you that we have that, I would most, one of the most highly skilled cyber units in law enforcement. And again, it isn't because uh, we're smarter than another agency. It's just our skill sets are following money, in this case, following value, following Bitcoin. And so we've been involved in a number of uh, 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 cryptocurrency cases to where we know there's been illegal activity uh, on the blockchain, purchases of, uh, of narcotics, amongst many other things. In fact, uh, the Silk Road investigation, uh, while worked in a multi-agency environment, the uh, Ross Albright was identified by an IRS special agent a couple of years after that task force was put together. And it's because of this, that special agent that they, he identified Ross Albright as being an original um, uh, promoter of Silk Road. And that, along with some other breadcrumbs that had been developed in, the, uh, uh, in that task force, put law enforcement on Ross Albright literally in a library I want to say somewhere in San Francisco where they found him and made sure they took his hands off the computer before they arrested him. That was our first case, Silk Road, and we were a big part of breaking that case. Of course, since then, there's been a lot of crypto, a lot of um, cryptocurrency cases. I, I don't know if that's the right description, but there's been a lot of investigations where cryptocurrency has been used for bad things. It's a great environment for um, uh, great things to happen. Uh, that's my belief but it's also an environment that's not well-regulated. There's not a lot to know your customer and the criminal organizations are and will take advantage of it. In fact, um, it was just a few years ago that we were involved in an investigation called Welcome to Video. And, and it's, uh, this case is sort of close to our hearts because you might not think of IRS criminal division, a financial agency looking into a case where it involved the dark net purchase uh, off a website of, of uh, uh, pornography involving, you know, children. But that's exactly what it was. Uh, you know, Welcome to Video is a business on the dark net that advertised child exploitation and uh, and videos. And uh, we were a part of that. Uh, we helped uh, identify where that dark net server was, and that held all that information around people transacting business, buying those videos, uploading those videos, and uh, you know that's one of our talents. We, we follow value uh, through the blockchain and our agents, along with some really smart uh, computer programmers, i.e. contractors that had been with us for three, four years. We sort of mixed and molded our skill sets together. And uh, we have a really uh, uh, quite a brain trust of uh, agent to contractor, computer contractor um, uh, marriage there, if you might say, it, that they can identify things that just aren't found by the law enforcement. So they found this darknet server in South Korea. They secured it. They looked at the IP addresses and that resulted in more than 300 arrests around the world take, and taken on that website. What are some of the other cases around cryptocurrency uh, and digital assets that you've been involved in that you can talk about? Sure, like I said, we started with the Silk Road. Um, some number of cases since then, but the most recent one is Hydra. Um, that was actually announced uh, just uh, maybe, I think it was last week, Hydra is the largest known darknet marketplace. Uh, and it was estimated that 8% of all the darknet uh, related cryptocurrency went through Hydra since 2015, total of around $5.2 billion in cryptocurrency. Um, that was a shutdown and it was actually a Russian operator 
that was indicted in that. So that sort of goes to sort of today's narrative, right, around sanctions mm -hmm. and uh, the movement of funds that go to maybe some sanctions uh, 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 conversation that we might have as well. A number of cases, I'll just list a couple of names. Um, we were involved in um, uh, BitConnect. I mentioned earlier, welcome to video, Bitfinex, uh, and um, a number of other crypto cases as well. Three though that are probably, I think, draw some interest and people may not know about, actually involved in taking down no less than three uh, websites that were uh, related to terrorist activity. In fact, those three websites uh, run by, one ran, ran by Alkazam Brigade's campaign. And these, they, they on their social media page, they were just soliciting donations to fund campaigns of terror. And, uh, and, and that's really what, they actually advertised it that way. Um, Bitcoin donations, they said they were untraceable and they'd just be used for violent, violent you know, acts and so on. Uh, Al-Qaeda campaign, they had a site and they had a Bitcoin money launder network. Um, in some cases, they said they were a charity. Of course, as we trace those funds, we know they're not. And then finally, uh, there was an ISIS campaign. Uh, their website claimed this is really uh, goes to something even more current. They were claiming to sell uh, N95 respirator masks during COVID, right? So the funding again, being asked to go to that site and eventually going to fund bad things. We were involved in a multi-AC effort to take those down. Again, that goes to our, our work with the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And what can you say about the recent Bitfinex hack, which was an incredibly fascinating story at, at many levels? Yeah, you know, um, I, I know that, I, I wish I was the expert on that. I, I can tell you that uh, we have others in the, in the agency that are probably more well-versed on this than I am. But I mean, I know that uh, we rearrested two folks, two people in, in Manhattan, and uh, you know, they were, you know, involved in a conspiracy to, to launder currency valued at more than $4.5 billion. And we've actually seized, and this was one of the largest seizures ever, $3.6 billion lead to that hack. So there's that hack, um, and then there's the seizure. And again, how would, how do we identify where that, where those uh, funds are, right? I mean, especially since the hack was so long ago. Um, and again, it's just following money. Uh, following value. And the way we found this sort of in short order, uh, Chitra, is that we've been involved in so many uh, internet-based investigations, cryptocurrency investigations, that as we get bits and pieces of each case, there's, I guess there's just family criminal activity. There's these transactions that somehow have some connections. It's not all in straight line, right? Um, it's zigs and zags, I guess. Mm -hmm. And as the agents that work those cases, we have a small select group of agents. I say small. Um, uh, it's relative, but our agents collaborate real well together. They they work real well with other agencies as, that that do this work. And what they found over a five to six year period of time is that they they drew all these these clues from other investigations. They were able to put together where that hack when it happened, where the money went, and the people now who have those wallets. Then of course you have to seize those wallets in a way that they're then secure. And, and our agents were able to do that. And uh, it resulted in a seized cryptocurrency value in excess of uh, three point, you know, $3 billion. Uh, that's a billion with a B. That's incredible. The money just is, it almost sounds like funny money, right? It's just everything's in the billions these days when it comes to these types of crimes. They're just massive in scale and, and 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 these criminals are incredibly ambitious in and pretty creative in how they're trying to to uh, game the system and and make get away with with literally billions of dollars. Well, and I think what we found too, one thing that's common to all these investigations, Chitra, is that you know um, the sales, uh, the purchase um, of virtually every kind of uh, drug, narcotic, person, human trafficking. In, in one case, like I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, sexual videos of, of you know, involving sex acts involving children. Um, I don't, you know, criminals are criminals, but I'll tell you, um, when you're traversing and, and dealing in in Bitcoin and, and maybe other other value, um, first of all, it's not anonymous. Um, you and I both know there's an open there's an open blockchain that w that we can that we can see. 
but when they're traversing this amount of money and, and blindly buying and selling uh, these drugs um, and, and, and administering or hosting a server that does bad things, uh, you know, these are cases that we're, that we're looking at every day. If the criminal thinks that they're, trans, that they're not transparent to us, that, that they can hide from us, I would just say uh, they can go to our website and look at the much longer list of these cases than I can cite to you uh, by memory today. That's great. Uh, one real quick question about the cryptocurrency and sort of this increasingly decentralized economy before we close with the look at the sanctions work that you're doing. But as the uh, financial system becomes more and more distributed and uh, you know diffused and decentralized, uh, how are you going to be able to track these types of crimes and be able to bring those people to justice. I, I recently read this just as an analogy. I was reading this story about the self-driving car getting pulled over for speeding and there's nobody there to ticket, <laughs> right? That kind of conundrum, yeah. if you can apply that to mm -hmm. the decentralized economy and decentralized financial system, how do you anticipate staying ahead of the game and, and being able to figure this out? Well, you know, Chitra, I, I don't know if we necessarily stay ahead of it. I would say we stay even with it. And like you uh, reminded me of, uh, at the beginning of this, how many decades I've been with CI. Uh, one of the things I know is true then during my career is true now. Um, they may hide, but eventually people exit their money to buy things, houses, cars, things I probably can't repeat on here, right? That's if, if we don't catch them then, and that's usually when it happens because people brag, um, and they buy assets that they have no other uh, legal means to purchase. Uh, that's when we catch them. It, we could talk about this value here, right, on on um, on the blockchain or hidden in a wallet somewhere. But what good is it to someone sitting there? Eventually, they're going to spend it. They're going to move it, and we learn about it. You know, uh, uh, crooks are while well, they're greedy and they're power hungry. They're not loyal to each other. <laughs> Two of them cannot keep a secret, and and that's how we, we catch a case. We also have uh, analytical power that we can look uh, at you know, certain cryptocurrency movement. And, and a good, good example might be um, where you and I, or you know, maybe not, I go to the bank to deposit a check like it's across the street. But if, if, our, if our tools, our cryptocurrency tools, see that same kind of deposit from a person in one location, hitting seven or eight different um, exchanges, and then rounding a corner and going back to that bank on the street, you know, it's a little suspicious. And, and that, that's sort of my, uh, my way to, in crayon, right, to explain to you how we detect some of this. So we stay even uh, and sometimes ahead, but at a worst case scenario, I believe we're, we're even with, with the people that are, that are learning to move things in a decentralized way. Now, let's talk a little bit about the work you've been doing on sanctions and sanctions violations uh, and uh, klepto capture, this task force by the Justice Department. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking about that. So we are part of this task force at the Justice Department, which means the Justice Department has sees a need here to just really centralize and galvanize and put together every agency that has a role in, in federal and policing the world. And in our case, our, the value we bring is that for the last two decades, and I didn't mention this, Chitra, is that uh, we, um, 15 years ago, everyone was hiding everyone, the people that were hiding money offshore, including some of these people that you might have heard about, the oligarchs and others like them, they were hiding their money in Swiss bank accounts. Well, we broke that Swiss bank account code 15 years ago. And a lot of those Swiss bankers you know, told us, okay, these are people who we've been hiding money for, we now know that, that we can't do that well. And, and here are our account holders. And so what value we bring is that we've been doing this offshore, identifying bad guys and bad conduct um, for decades. And so what we bring to the table is that this uh, activity where, where we see um, probably maybe the arm uh, of uh, the oligarchs that are serving you know, that effort there in, uh, in Russia, uh, we've seen those families, those organizations is really what they are. We've seen them in cases before. So what we bring to this is our skills of following that money, 
our history of knowing how the offshore bank accounts work, nominee names, how money can be moved and traversed both you know, electronically from one account to another. So we're part of the kleptocracy task force and between what we know and what the FBI knows, HSI and so on, we will figure out who is best situated to identify those assets, to identify that money. Because in the end, what we're doing is we're targeting complex transnational criminal organizations. They just happen to be called oligarchs, but we've been doing that for a couple of decades now. And we'll continue to do that. And now we're just laser focused on a certain group of people that are both directly related to that war effort or indirectly related to that war effort. And uh, we're part of the task force that's been organized by justice. And you always hear about these crazy seizures of various assets. And I guess in this case, those yachts are, are kind of fun to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I have not seen any up close, but I'll tell you that uh, a good example would be that where we might uh, be asked for certain information that we may or may not know about an asset like that. Uh, we work legally, we know through our legal process with our, our international partners, which again, are going back to the attache, the special agent that sits in different countries. We have those relationships. They call us for help. We call them for help. And, and we are part of, you know, adding a part piece to that puzzle where maybe that that foreign country and their law enforcement might seize that asset or, or we seize it here or, you know, another law enforcement agency seizes it. But the fact is we have to put our information together um, before we can really make it work because there is a legal process. We just can't go out and grab it. You know, we have to uh, tie it to bad behavior, tie it to sanctions activity. And, and once those individuals, those companies, those facilitators of this bad behavior are put on Treasury's sanctions list, then those assets can be seized. And we're, we're part of identifying those, those entities, those individuals, um, their connections to um, that, that uh, war effort over there. And we're part of that. And we're helping fill that list of, uh, for sanctions for purposes of you know, attaching uh, that sanctions uh, brand, if you want to call that, to those entities, those individuals. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, Jim. We've covered like the sweeping arc of history of criminal investigation <laughs> and, and all of the changes in, in technology and in the nature of crime and, and how you are going after uh, those who try to evade uh, taxes and all of the crimes related to that. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts when you kind of look at that sweeping arc on where, uh, where this is going and, and uh, where you've been? Well, um, first of all, I'm lucky to have been here, work with, with I, I would say, some of the most highly skilled, um, adaptive, um, smart people um, that, that you're going to come across, dedicated uh, public servants. So uh, I've enjoyed my entire time here and continue to enjoy it with CI. Where do I see things going? I see us continuing to operate. I will tell you that... Um, uh, we haven't always had a lot of agents in our in our workforce, and, and we we suffered some attrition over the last uh, couple of years uh, to the point where we really um, you know lost some of our bandwidth. We have begun hiring again, and the the agents that are coming in our ranks now are are not unlike the legacy agents from decades ago. They're highly skilled, they're highly educated, they have good backgrounds, and they're committed to public service. Um, because you don't get rich here. Um, it's a government job, but it's very um, satisfying to know that you're doing something good. So I have um, uh, all the confidence in the world that this division of IRS will continue to be a, you know, a shining star uh, for not just uh, IRS, but for federal law enforcement. And uh, I'll, I know we'll also continue to be uh, sought out uh, like we are by prosecutors who know the work we do um, is as foolproof as we can possibly get it with the evidence that we can that we can secure. So that said, Chitra, thanks uh, for talking to me. There, we have gone through a lot. Um, there's little stories or larger stories in every facet of what we just talked about, and I hope I made some sense of this uh, more than 100-year legacy that is IRS criminal investigation. Thank you. 
James Robnett is the deputy chief of the IRS criminal investigation based in Washington, D.C. He is responsible for overseeing a worldwide staff of nearly 3,000 criminal investigation employees, including approximately 2,000 special agents located in 21 field offices and 11 foreign countries who investigate crimes involving tax, money laundering, public corruption, cybercrimes, identity theft, narcotics, and terrorist financing. Robnett began his career as a special agent in 1994. He has moved through the leadership ranks and as a senior executive has held positions of increasing responsibility in Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.